Interlibrary Loan The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood Hello everyone and welcome back to Interlibrary Loan, the show where a couple of friends read a book worth discussing and then discuss it a little bit at a time. We are in our last episode on Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, We are covering today chapter, or I guess section 14, salvaging, section 15, night, and then the historical notes at the end of the novel. So as always, I'm Katie. I'm Sky. And I'm Lauren. All right, right. and here we go. Oh, and by the way, uh, I'd like to apologize, everyone, for the horrible quality of my audio from the past couple of weeks. Uh, I think we have it figured out. Uh, when we last uh, left our heroine of, of Fred, um, she had begun at the uh, request of Serena Joy to see Nick the chauffeur uh, as a uh, way of maybe getting pregnant uh, without the commander who is uh, who seems to be sterile. Right. And this, of course, having the reward that Serena Joy has a baby to raise so Fred continues to discuss this and it's like the same as earlier in the book her impulse is to steal things or even like the excitement of keeping the match under her mattress um it's like a way for her to subvert the authority the oppressive authority that um that that stifles her right she finds excitement in it yeah, she keeps talking about being reckless and taking stupid chances, but it's it's almost like it's she can't help herself and this relationship with Nick is is so rewarding and it's so, you know, it sh- shakes up her routine so much from the, you know, awful oppressive monotony that she can't help herself. And her relationship with um with Nick like Nick is very ambiguous throughout um of of Fred is not really sure and can never be sure like how committed he is or like Nick never really seems to be that affectionate necessarily um but it's better than what she's got that's for sure um and she sort of runs with it she talks about being safe with him about having you know having this space that she can go to once he lets her in and she's next to him and she can enjoy the you know a comfort that that reminds her of the comfort of her life before the Republic of Gilead. Right. And she's even so comfortable that she tells him her real name of not us though, but yeah, no, we, we, we never learn her real name in this novel. And neither do the historians. Yeah. Indeed. Which is a point that we'll definitely want to discuss. So from this, we move on to yet another strange kind of ritual that exists in the Republic of Gilead, and that is the salvaging. So the salvaging are, is a public execution ritual in which um, handmaids, and in this case, uh, an unusual case, also a wife, are hanged, um, and everybody watches. Yeah, and there's this particular section at the beginning of this telling of the salvaging that I find like fascinating and kind of kind of important. So she's just basically describing like how, how they're filing in for it, and she says, 
To the tolling of the bell, we walk along the paths once used by students, past buildings that were once lecture halls and dormitories. It's very strange to be here again. From the outside, you can't tell that anything's changed, except that the blinds on most of the windows are drawn down. These buildings belong to the eyes now. So th she, what she's describing is like a, basically another example of some part of the old world being used for this new like perverted interpretation of very old puritanism that has uh taken over and established authority in the republic of gilead and um but i find this also like an important note on what we've talked about before like how widespread is this new um ideology going uh, and so that part of like from the outside you can't tell that anything's changed just makes me think about like from from the outside of the Republic of Gilead could out, how much do outsiders see that's changed and so that's just an important note that I really liked well and it's kind of it's that I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because it's it makes it a little bit disorienting for the people who are there too because it's they recognize these little hints from the old world and they it's destabilizing you know you um you start to feel like this is home and that this is normal because this is what you've seen your you know entire life in this other place and it's so perverted that like uh what what used to be a college campus is now used for like public, public institutions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In so this, weird. In this section of Fred's, um, like uh, Fred does not describe in detail the events and the hanging. That's just not something she can do. And she keeps, you know, she keeps, uh, she, you know, she's writing from a place of like severe trauma and this trauma that she knows is coming because she's done these before. And she doesn't want to talk about it. And she, she even saying, says, I don't want to be telling this story. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually don't learn a whole lot of detail about the salvaging itself and about what's going on. Um, we don't even know. know what crimes they're accused of because they they decide this time that they're not going to, to say what they've done. Because right. to, to supposedly avoid, you know... Um, copycat offenses. Aunt Lydia does announce the names of the condemned, but in fact, uh, uh, Fred only tells us one of them. So, you know, she's she keeps focusing on, like, there's this dandelion in front of her that she's, like, looking at. You know, she wants to be anywhere but there, and her narrative reflects that. You know, she's uh, deliberately trying to not describe the events in detail. And I think that that's something... So... In the very beginning of the story, we get this, like, really intricate detail of her bedroom, right? That's so mm -hmm. boring. Like, the the grain in the wood and the, the rug and things like that. And here we get this really intricate detail of, of the rope. She says, I described the rope. And so you're thinking, why such detail in, in these objects? And it's because it's a form of escape. She says, I don't want to be telling this story. So instead, I'm going to describe the rope that I'm staring at. But I think it's interesting that she decides to, decide to describe the rope because the rope really symbolizes her consent in complicity in these in this execution you know they all touch the rope when they're when the women are hung to show that they are you know they accept this and they condone it and they are part of it 
she's she's friends with of Glenn, who we know is a revolutionary. Um, but like er- earlier in this section, um, of Fred says of Glenn is giving up on me. Um, so you know while of Fred, like she 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 clearly is not a a a, a true believer as we know that that there are at least seem to be true believers of of um of the the society um while fred is not a true believer she also sometimes is complicit i think it's more she's flawed yeah i think it's more just like she's not up to the task of being a moira you know what i mean right yeah yeah um well she she's doing what she has to do to survive and she talks about this she talked she talked about it early in the book when she said that there wasn't much choice but she made a choice and this was the choice she made and that's in part because she couldn't you know she couldn't be a revolutionary or be a a moira she she's it's too much for her just to try to survive day by day but it's also like you know uh, a friend here has the choice to you know, risk her life by getting involved with of Glenn and the and the Mayday, or uh, you know, risk her life by getting involved with Nick. And she, you know, she writes. She makes this very clear choice. Like, I'm only interested in Nick. I'm not that interested in Mayday anymore. And of Glenn is giving up on me because, like, I'm doing this other stupid thing instead of the stupid thing that she wants me to do. Right. Um, well, and I mean, who can blame her in the situation that she's in? Does she really need to be a hero to, you know, as far as like a big capital H hero on a grand social scale? You know, she's doing what's going to keep her sane for the next, you know, however brief period. But as the reader, I'm like, oh, no, you're throwing it away. You could be doing like way more interesting things for me as a reader by, by hanging out with them Glenn and joining the uh, the conspiracy. She um, could be, uh, but she also, you know, repeatedly notes that even even with of Glenn, like she she was she wasn't sure how much she could really trust of Glenn at first, and uh, because there's no way to know who's a spy who who's who's a like actually a true believer who's a who's who are the eyes and who is definitely a revolutionary and then even you know we had moira who is like the most badass like strong character in 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 the entire book that we've met and who you know has escaped like her her grand escape wearing one of the the ants uh habit which is so symbolic um even she kind of gets crushed by this world mm-hmm. yeah so. it, it's it's uh in some ways like frustrating to see uh of fred uh you know take the like easy road in the sense or, or the road of like of uh of comfort but at the same time like we make these decisions all the time like i feel i you know and like when I make those decisions, I feel bad about myself for doing that, you know? But I don't know if we can really say that she's taking the easy road or the road of comfort because she's even said before that she doesn't know if she can trust that 
of Glenn that the information that she's getting is really real information or that it's not just a bunch of, you know, like rumors and BS, you know? She doesn't know. She's in yeah, a, I mean, she's she in a place of know complete Nick, ignorance. She doesn't know if Nick is like an I or if Nick will betray her either, but she keeps going with that. What I'm saying is like both choices are dangerous and risky ones, but she takes the one that will like more obviously lead to her comfort and like you know she's got she writes as if she has this like sort of compulsion which is a compulsion like like i'm i'm not trying to be harsh on uh on a friend <laughs> like uh you know but um the other risk she could have taken would have been to get more involved with of glenn and the mayday folks and, you know, that would have just been, like, a different section to have here in this part of the novel. That would have also drawn a lot of attention to herself and possibly gotten her, you know... Yeah, take, absolutely. ...picked up. Yep. Yeah. Um, but... You know, we... I guess we, the reader, eventually find out that, like, of Glenn is for real and, like, Mayday is real. But of Fred at this point in the novel, and we, the reader at this point in the novel, we don't know that. We still... Yeah, we still can't be sure and she can't be sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, do we want uh, to talk about the other ritual that we see? Yeah, I was just going to say, let's talk about this participation because it's pretty messed up. <laughs> yep. So here we have, like, we've had before instances of some of the tenets of this, like, old world feminism being perverted um, and used to, like give these women a false idea of community and you know uniting them against pornography or rape or something and using that as a way to control them still so here is this perfect example of that so this participation how this happens is they bring some dude in who's uh been accused of rape and and killing a fetus, too. Yeah. And then they're going to blow a whistle. And the handmaids can do whatever they want. And then they're going to blow another whistle. And they have to stop. And, yeah, it's it's really disturbing. <laughs> I think what's most interesting to me is that uh, Fred is as disturbed as we the, the reader is. Yes. Uh, as we the readers are. Uh, you know, of Fred thinks this is, you know, inhuman and cruel and barbaric and does not want to take part and has to in order to, you know, meet the requirements of, uh, of the society and to avoid punishment. Um, but she sees of Glenn sort of enthusiastically going after this dude and is shocked uh, and... It's not until of Glenn reveals, like, hey, that guy was one of us, and I was putting him out of his misery so he wouldn't, like, reveal anything and to be, like, you know, to be merciful to him. Um, right. So because this... that that's the most disturbing part of this is that this 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 guy is, like, you know, they, they tell the women, this is a rapist and a fetus uh, has committed infanticide or, I guess, killing a fetus, I guess. But anyway... Um, they 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 lead the women to believe this and instead it's a mayday plant which yeah 
But I mean, it's a, it's a perfect release valve for all of the anger and hatred and self-hatred that these women are subject to. And you look and you see who really gets something out of it. And you see Janine, you know, stumbling away and covered in blood. And it makes sense, you know? You understand her anger and why she wanted to rip that dude to shreds after she, like lost her baby and you know went through the hell that she's gone through yeah but also like by you know this is a society that maintains its order through the constant threat and use of um lethal violence and um by having the oppressed members of that society themselves commit lethal violence um it makes them complicit in and less hostile to that society's form of oppression, right? Who are they to say that, you know, they that the society is unjust when they themselves have taken place in right. the brutality of it? Yep. Yeah. What did you guys think about her? My, at the end of this chapter, she talks about um, being hungry after the salvaging. Oh, yeah, and she describes her lunch and, like, she eats it, um, a school child's lunch. And she eats it, like, with great relish. She says, death makes me hungry. Maybe it's because I've been emptied, or maybe it's the body's way of seeing to it that I remain alive. Continue to repeat its bedrock prayer. I am, I am, I am still. I want to go to bed, make love, right now. I think of the word relish. I could eat a horse. Yeah. So with when she's confronted with death, all of a sudden all of these primal it's, instincts come you know yeah i know to it's, the surface. It's, it's like her body is viscerally reminding her that she's alive yeah yep i i i imagine based on literature and stuff that <laughs> this is how people who undergo real trauma like feel and react once they're out of the danger of trauma i don't know if that's actually true or not that's just what uh that's just what like books and movies have taught me well, but I mean, there is the whole thing of like adrenaline mm-hmm. uh, that 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 takes over after like if you've had a harrowing experience, mm-hmm. you know, your blood pumps a little faster and your f- skin feels a little tingly and mm-hmm. you feel more alive. Yep. I wonder what Margaret Atwood's sources were for describing people's like people's reactions to trauma like this i wonder if she did interviews with people or is this something that she kind of intuited or you know i kind of want to know what 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 is she basing this of glenn's re or of fred's reactions on yeah a lot of the i mean a lot of the background for it i think i've mentioned this in earlier episodes comes from um, Margaret Atwood was in West Berlin mm. when writing this mm-hmm. novel and was visiting uh, areas of the Soviet Union and talking to people there. But this is kind of a West different thing East you're describing. She was in West Berlin. This was during, you know, the Berlin Wall before and the Cold the fa- War, right, before the fall of the yeah, wall. So, yeah. And so, yeah. um, well, and I think she wrote it a few years before that right. or started writing it. Yeah. Um, but she was living in West Berlin. But, you know, in the course of doing that, she was able to visit certain areas of you know, East Germany and uh, the Soviet Union and, you know, a lot of the conditions of the Republic of Gilead are based heavily on the conditions in the Soviet Union and the stories she heard. But this is kind of a different thing that you're talking about, Lauren. You're talking about, like, people, like, 
the sort of immediate reactions to trauma. Yeah, the psychological processing of trauma and the way she de- she describes it in really minute, intimate detail. And, I mean, I've never experienced the kind of trauma that of Fred has, so I don't know if this is an accurate depiction of that trauma. But... I you know I'd just be curious to see like why she made the choices that she did in in in, in choosing how to describe such you know like bodily bodily reactions and you know the the kind of way that of Fred shuts down and and then reactivates in these kind of cycles she goes through. So um, and and may we never have to know. Oh yeah. So uh, Margaret Atwood, famous uh, prolific Twitter user and author, if you're listening to our podcast, please get at us on Twitter and tell us about this. (laughs) In the desert, there is no sign that says, thou shalt not eat stones. So moving right along to um, a new episode with Of Glenn. But not with of Glenn as we have known her. Oh my God! This was the scariest part of the whole novel. Like, wasn't when, it? When, when, like, she describes. I mean, she almost describes of Glenn as like a shambling corpse, like a zombie, like coming up to her, and it's like, oh, you are of Glenn, but you're not. You're kind of weird and different. What is going on? Like, it was to me one of the scariest passages of the novel. Yeah, absolutely. Because and then you realize it's not her. Yeah, you real you realize it's. I mean, it's and she, Fred says it's of Glenn, but it's not of Glenn because. And then she asks, "What happened to of Glenn?" And she says, "I am of, I Glenn. Am of Glenn." And that is like that is again. That's like some like like something... old old fashioned sci fi Twilight Zone pod people shit. Yes, it is. It's like straight out of a horror movie. Um, because this is not of Glenn, and you know, my God, what happened to her? But it doesn't um, matter because she is not an individual. She has no subjectivity, and she is just mm-hmm. the, all she is is a is a vessel for childbearing. Right. So this is this crazy thing where it's like, oh, like this person is of Glenn now, I guess. But that's <laughs> oh, oh man. Yeah. So so she goes out with her the whole day, and like this other of Glenn is really sort of like distant and like weird. And finally... Really drank the Kool-Aid. Well, but so finally, uh, you know, basically, like, finally a friend sort of breaks down and is like, is she okay? Like, I don't know what happened to her. And this other of Glenn sort of, like, leans in close and is like, listen up, dummy. She's part of Mayday. And she got caught and she hanged herself because she didn't want to go into the van and shut up and stop asking questions or the same thing's going to happen to you. Well, but also, like, I mean, Fred is the one to mention Mayday first. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So Fred like, tests this other of Glenn out to yeah, be like, yeah. yeah, and she, like, totally doesn't go for it. She's like, yeah, that's weird. Like, shut up. You, you ought to make an effort to clear your mind of such echoes. Right. And so here is a Fred who is basically uh, very dangerously put herself on the line out to this new of Glenn. And does not receive the response that she would have hoped for. Mm. So, so now she knows, you know, what <laughs> what's going to happen she now. She just outed herself too. You know, yeah. this, this other woman could turn her in. Yep. So, and then when they get back from shopping, 
the floor really falls out because Serena Joy has somehow found the sequined dealy thing. And her cloak yeah. with lipstick on it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so it's crazy at this moment in the story, we the reader don't know how connected all of these events are, right? There's all of these things that have just been introduced. There's the uh, there's the man who was uh, beaten to death and who was part of Mayday. There's of Glenn being replaced. There's this new of Glenn. There's Serena Joy finding the sequin thing. Like things are looking bad for a Fred, but like we have no idea what the big picture is. Mm. Right. Um, and basically, a Fred just has to wait for the van. Yeah, and so and she's. So she's she's like considering her options. She's thinking about she knows what's going to happen. She's like this this is all going downhill and I'm going to be arrested. And um she's like considering her options. What what could she possibly do? Um and then uh she like she's thinking about the 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 woman before her too. And yeah, finally, she's, she's like, did, is this what happened to her? Like, did she was she waiting for a van and then hanged herself then? Right. Because um, and, and because that's it's it's interesting. I mean, morbid, but interesting that of Glenn basically suffers the same fate as the previous of Fred. Um, like the new of Glenn tells us that old of Glenn hanged herself because it was better that way. So um, she goes through, a Fred runs through all of these different scenarios. She's got that match. She could set fire to the place. She could try to, and then if the match doesn't work or whatever, then I guess that option's up. She could hang herself. She could, like, go to the commander and beg for mercy. And she's basically like, yeah, none of these options are any good. Um, and she, you know, can't decide on any course of action because, like, they all involve her dying and that's not and she doesn't want to right and so when the time does come and the van is here and there's a knock on her door she's she's like her mind is racing but it turns out um the so nick is there and you know she immediately is like okay great nick was an eye and now he's given me up but he tells her that he's with mayday and, and the van is with Mayday. He's yeah. like, yo, the van is Mayday. You need to go to the van. Right. And he calls and, her by her real name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but so, she doesn't know. She doesn't know if he's telling the truth or if he's lying. Exactly. And we don't either. We end this story not really knowing. And she says, the last line that she writes is, and so I step up into the darkness within or else the light. What's cool about this section is that Serena Joy and the commander are like, they're in big, like, the commander's like, hey, do you guys have a warrant? And the, the, the guys are, you know, from the van are basically like, yeah, we don't have to show you anything, like, whatever. But also, you know, they basically say that um, she, like, re like, revealed state secrets or something like that. Right, and which, we realize that Serena Joy didn't turn her in. Right, like, she thinks that probably Serena Joy turned her in for finding the sequence stuff. But in fact, that, you know, she says, whatever punishment Serena Joy had in mind for me would have been more private. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and in fact, it's something else. But this, you know, compromises the commander, too. Mm -hmm. So the commander is in deep shit. 
Yeah. Um, and it's the, not the commander who's turned her in either. So whatever's happening, it's not, you know, the, the Serena Joy and the commander are more surprised than Fred is about the whole affair. Serena Joy calls her a bitch. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, uh, we we end uh, Fred's narrative with, yeah, with her walking. I mean, this is so, this ending section uh, really reminds me of 1984, um, both in the, like, uncertainty of, uh, you know, what is going to happen. Um, like, you know, Winston waiting for room 101 and things like that. But also, like, the sort of, like, crazy plans and bargaining that you go through when you're in a situation like this. You know, um, at one point, a Fred says, like, you know, like, hey, I'll do whatever they want. I'll, you know, I'll out everyone I know. I'll, uh, you know, I'll tell them whatever they want to hear. Like, you know, she's being sort of, like, She's acting as if she's under torture, even though she's not directly being tortured. But, you know, she's she's cracking, basically. But she's, she's doing the things, all the things that your mind does when you're in that kind of situation. And you're just, like, when you're you're seeing this existential threat and you know that there's, you know, there's no good outcome. Right. Yeah. Yeah. baby leaves you, you got a tail to tail. And that's it. That's the end of uh, of the book, guys. We did it. Um, <laughs> well, and we just don't know what happened. Well, to... no. Except, Wait. except we get this fascinating section at the end called historical notes oh wait i thought that was just like a bunch of boring stuff about the book i didn't read that section guys now um, see this is why you should always read the notes at the end of oh the book. man but they're so boring i didn't read any of the notes <laughs> God, i'm just kidding guys uh i read i read the notes um they were amazing uh, yeah can yeah. you imagine if you like just don't read the historical if you're notes? like oh this is gonna be a boring like appendix i'm yeah, not gonna read this you're like oh no this is just like some thing that some outside person threw in here i'm not gonna bother yeah no the so the the historical notes are written uh this is from an academic conference um 12th symposium on gileadian gileadian studies right uh written in 2195 Mm -hmm. so um this is quite a while after uh the events of the novel take place the future (laughs) and so here's what i want to say about these historical notes is that it's this great like kind of tongue-in-cheek um uh jab at academia yeah it was wonderful Um, yeah because it's kind of like so there there are two so um, did not originally exist as a manuscript, and they say that they say we're calling it the manuscript as for purposes of of this paper. But basically, what what it was was these were tapes that were discovered, mm-hmm. like in the basement of some house that was on this underground female road. I um, find that the most unconvincing part of the entire novel is that like cassette tapes from the eighties could have survived in readable form to like twenty five. Like you're. Well, and they had to, like, build a device that could... 
read them, but that could read them. But like um, cassette tape, like degrades so quickly and so completely that like I I that. I mean, when Margaret Atwood was writing this in the 80s, cassette tapes hadn't been lo- around long enough to, like, degrade like that. But, like, I th- now we, I think we know that, like... They're not as good as compact discs, you know? Well, well no, yeah. but I mean, like, I don't know... You know, I actually don't know this. I would have to talk to people who are, um, like, new media conservators. But, like, as far as I understand about magnetic tapes, like, there's no way they would still be readable well, after that length so they, of time. But they were inside that um, that army-grade locker thing, so maybe they were suspend them Maybe. Now? I'm suspending suspend, my disbelief. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, suspend your disbelief a little bit, Sky. Yeah. I, I, and... I, 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 I mean... I was like, huh, I don't know if that works, but, like, it, it didn't, uh, like, break uh, the fiction right, for me. I can deal with it. So. I can deal with it, guys. <laughs> so, basically, they uh, they transcribe these series of tapes that have been recorded by this narrator, who, indeed, never does tell us her name, and does all these tricksy things they, they note of, like, hiding her true identity, but also maybe giving hints as to who Serena Joy really was, and who... Uh, the commander really was like they have a couple of options and um it was my understanding that they got those ideas of who serena joy and who the commander might have been through like other historical sources yeah oh yeah yeah like they're they're doing all this research to try and uncover like who of fred really was and and who these people were but these tapes were recorded over like uh, Pop music. music and yeah. classical music and El- what are some of the ones there's Elvis, Elvis. there's uh, Boy George there's my favorite folk songs of Lithuania Yes, yeah. that was great. And then um, also Twisted, Sisti- Sis- Tw- Twisted Sisters at Carnegie Hall. A personal favorite of the lecture. Yes. <laughs> um, and so they're they're considering, you know, they're doing this like academic uh, study of these tapes and thinking like, okay, so first of all, we have to consider that this could be a forgery. Um, was this real? Uh when was this recorded and they they deduced that this was like pretty soon after the beginning of of um how things kind of came to be in the republic of gilead and that it would have been impossible to create a forgery that is contemporary to the historians that they would have had to, right. to have dated from at least around the period where of Glenn would have been or sorry where Fred would have been alive right um so what what this uh section this these historical notes on the handmaid's tale really for me um like I said it's like this like jab at academia um but it's also shows you so there are two readers that we're considering here because several times throughout the story of fred says dear reader dear reader and that is like us dear reader um but then these 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 professors professor what's his name pixioto yeah professor pixioto he's he he is another reader professor pidgeotto yeah, yeah professor pidgeotto um <laughs> 
<laughs> oh boy. Uh, yeah, and um, not the intended reader, but a reader nonetheless. It makes more sense now that we like when she keeps addressing you in the text. That seems like strange, and it's not clear. We you know we've talked about this maybe referring to. Uh, Luke or to her daughter but it makes much more sense now that we know that these were recorded as audio cassettes because then it becomes a direct address to the listener whoever that may be it's like it's like uh sky it's like sanmi 451 yeah it's yeah. you know mm-hmm. a, a, it's a fred putting this call out to um to anybody who who may you know listen to her story and like take up the take up the torch mm-hmm. and just like the uh, valley people in uh, in cloud atlas the <laughs> historians of the future don't get it they totally fuck it up <laughs> <laughs> and misogyny and sexism is alive and well in the 22nd century indeed but there is um, of course hints that like society has reformed itself and and um there is supposedly now equality for all and or and, at least and, something more closely resembling the world that we live in you know well like, yeah kind of and n- not back to way to the way things were in the united states but but this kind of new reformed um idea that is far from the republic of gilead and this is like this section for me sealed the deal that like the handmaid's tale is not a book about the future or a future it is a book about the past and Mm -hmm. how we look at the past because you know this whole after this in this like heartbreaking like dramatic heart like narrative about the republic of gilead we get these historians talking about it and they talk about it the way that historians talk about past societies. And it was pro- a really detached, you know. Yeah, like, exactly. Void of emotion. Like they're making, they're almost making light and making fun of the people who they're studying. So we, the reader, are supposed to, you know, read these historical notes and be like, "No, no, you jerk! You're getting it all wrong. Like, sh- aren't you moved by, you know, the experiences of of Fred and the others? Don't you understand, like?" how much they are at you know at one point basically the guy's like yeah this narrative doesn't tell us a lot about this society like it's a shame judge them too harshly yeah they're they were pretty dumb and like it's a shame that we don't have their like official documents like government documents because that's what we really want but it's like no no guys this is the good stuff like yeah government documents are bullshit like this is the narrative that you need to understand the society are you not horrified by the atrocities? These are things that happen to real people She's... as they confirm or, you know. And, I mean, essentially in this last section, Margaret Atwood is making the case for social history. She's saying, you know, the important things are not the records of the state or how the government was organized or what happened between the early and middle Gilead periods. The important things are, you know, and we should take seriously as historians the narratives of everyday people, the narratives of the oppressed, and yes, the, the experiences of the people who live within that regime. Exactly. Right, and the people and the experiences of the people who are far too often ignored by history and who are written off and who we don't know what their lives have been and whose whose pasts have been erased. And I think that's something that this historical note really makes clear is that even in the future times 
of Fred has lost all subjectivity. She is not a person to them in the same way because her importance is still framed in in relation to what she can tell them about these great, awful leader men. Well, and this is what I was sort of um, talking about earlier is that, like, in this last section of Fred chooses to have and describe this affair with Nick rather than, uh, you know, get deeper into Mayday with of Glenn. And to us, the reader, and to these historians, that's frustrating because in a certain sense, the narrative would be more interesting if she was hanging out with of Glenn. But that's not how people work, right? That's not how and- they make decisions. My my big question uh, for this whole book, or not the one, but one of my big questions for the whole book uh, that I want to hear what you guys think is, so why do we never learn of Fred's real name? Why does she never tell us her name? And I mean, for me, I think there are two... <laughs> interpretations there's the easy one of a lot of times you know an author will put a shell character in in a book so a reader could easily put themselves in the, in that person's character but i think that is far too simple and absolutely not what market at what was going at here i think for me the reason we don't really know who a fred is is because so many times throughout history people get erased we don't hear their stories mm. and that is truly the yeah the most important concept from this book is that the people who live under who lived under the the totalitarian regime of the republic of gilead are the important stories that we need to know mm-hmm. yeah i think also like there's a strong motivation for of fred as a narrator to not reveal her name um i think part to protect of protect her her loved ones right but also like just like Nick gets to know her name. Nick is someone she's intimate with. We, the reader, whoever, you know, the unknown person she's addressing these, uh, her narrative to, she doesn't know who that, who we are. And the name in her world is, you know, the most intimate and private thing. And it's something that gets taken away from people. You know, that hor- horrific moment at the end of the book where of Glenn, you know, says, of Glenn turns into a different person and then says, I am of Glenn. Like, that's one of the most horrifying parts. And we learn that even the ants who have a relative amount of power don't have their own names. Their names have been taken from, like, these commercial products. From, like, cleaning products. Yeah. 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 We do learn a little bit about the commander in this section. Um, They, the historian offers two different um, possibilities of who the commander might be uh, and points to one of them as the likely identity for the commander. Um, And so it turns out that the uh, participations, the salvagings, the handmaids wearing red, all of those were his idea. Jerk. (laughs) Which I think that does like a really good um, thing for the narrative as a whole as well. Like I think the, um, again, like the commander comes out of the book looking mostly like an idiot and kind and maybe even like a relatively sympathetic character. And it's like in one of, you know, it's like watching an old documentary about 
you know, like Hitler's Germany, where, you know, they'll talk in a documentary about like, this was this, you know, high ranking Nazi officer. Like he liked to, uh, you know, Perform go on experiments on twins and well, you know. yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like first, you know, they, in in a lot, in documentaries, like sometimes they'll talk about like what they were like as a person, and they'll seem really human, and then they'll say some, you know, and then they'll talk about what they did within the Nazi regime, and it's like, oh, this per- this human was a monster, and that's you know that's how we end up thinking about the commander at the end of this because and you know out of the two identities they suggest for the commander the one that they point to as being the likely one is the less monstrous of the two the Mm -hmm. the other guy is it seems like one of the main architects of the whole regime to begin with you know like steve bannon (laughs) yeah right exactly like we're we're looking at the ben carson and not the steve bannon of uh of gilead both equally horrific but one just more evil than the other i think yeah Yeah, right um so ben carson may not be the best analog but whatever you guys know what i'm talking about (laughs) yeah Um, i don't know that I could. ben carson is maybe more bumbling than the commander no i i think that waterford is more like jared kushner oh that's yeah you know what that's a better that's a better uh um all right uh so for evergreen purposes uh, this is being recorded on uh, April 2nd, 2017. All of these commentaries on United States politics are very topical right now. <laughs> Just so yeah. you know, listeners. Listeners listening in the 22nd century. Yeah. Uh, listen, listeners listening in 20 years under Chancellor Bannon and <laughs> the evil. Those of you listening on the rebel base on Dantooine. And finding the archives of the resistance that was interlibrary loan. Oh yeah, interlibrary loan is death. Uh, is death May Day. Um, we'll send a van to get you out of there. <laughs> is dope and i wish i had read it as when i was younger like i'm i'm upset that it has taken me to the age of 28 to read this novel you know i'm i i like i said i read this book in high school Mm. um and i but as a high schooler you don't really understand things i think yep isn't that the truth (laughs) even as a college student i don't know that you would get the full appreciation of this novel and you know while i was studious and i read the book and i and i i i did the homework and i appreciate i certainly appreciated it then um there are so many layers that i think were that that i missed um so i've absolutely enjoyed uh revisiting this yeah, I'll third that. So th- this was my second time reading, and the first time I just kind of devoured it, and I don't think I really steeped myself in the world, and I didn't take away as much just because I wasn't talking to anyone about it, and I just was, like, you know, consuming it by myself. Um, but it's been um, really rewarding to go back over it, and it's just as good as I remember, if not better. Mm-hmm. I cannot wait to see what they do with this for this Hulu miniseries. 
I was also I like kind of lukewarm on that before I finished the novel. Yeah. I was like, eh, they'll probably just make it really Hollywood and it won't be nearly as good. But I'm like, now nah, they could do a lot of cool stuff with this. So I'm I'm hoping that they they do it justice. I've seen the cast list and I'm super pissed that they're making Serena Joy and the Commander these like hot young things. I'm like. They're not supposed to look attractive. Well, they're people. in their like mid thirties. The actors who are playing, yeah, them. but they're like they're not like really really young. But they're not old. Like I think I think you're right. Like part of the part of Serena Joy's character, especially, is that she's this older woman, old and decrepit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it'll be it'll be interesting to to see that and how. I mean, how they, they could, really make the characters as despicable as they need to be. Yeah, I mean, they could go in an interesting d- direction. How much of Serena Joy's description in the novel as being decrepit is a result of her being barren, right? Like, she may not be decrepit the way we would describe that. She walks that. with a cane. She's like... Oh, she's, does she? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's got, like, arthritis and stuff. Yeah, she's got to be, like, old. She's got to be, like, at least 60, right? Yeah. Like, kind of frail. Yeah, and she talks about her as being bony all the time, you know? But mm-hmm. that's interesting because that would indicate that when that sort of doesn't make sense in the timeline of the novel either, though, because for uh, Fred, who is maybe in her late twenties, early thirties, she's in her thirties. She she's in her thirties. Okay, 30s. that would mean that Serena Joy was in her thirties when a Fred was watching her on TV. Um, that makes sense. Does it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, in that case, yeah. So they're they're. I mean, uh, Joseph Fines is going to be the commander, um, and he's very handsome. And I was going to say he's a bit too dreamy. He's, yeah. he's like hunky. Like yeah. they, I hope they ugly him up. Um, uh, I've seen pictures. They don't. They don't. Oh man, the commander's supposed to be a doofus. Uh, they can't make Joseph Fines into a doofus. But nobody in Hollywood can be ugly. Like they don't. They won't. They refuse to put ugly people on TV. <sighs> yes. Well. We'll um, just have to wait and see. Yeah, um, I know that uh, that uh, uh, interlibrary loan number one super fan Dana Victor was asking us who would play Sucky Janine in Lars the Swede's adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if oh. you guys have any ideas about that. Um, oh man. I kind of feel like I, I know I've brought up Moaning Myrtle before, but the girl who plays Moaning Myrtle in the Harry Potter series would make a great Sucky Janine. Oh, she would. Yeah, she would. Isn't she like thirty something though? I mean, that well, would that, be fine that would for fit. Yeah. I think I I seem to remember that that like weirdly the the actress who plays Morning Myrtle in the Harry Potter movies is like was like thirty years old when she did that role. Um, I think she was. Well, also the. Never mind. That was irrelevant. <laughs> it's like it's like digitally altered too, so you could do. A I'm lot actually going to look this up because, and I'll cut it out if I'm wrong. But we we do need to still do our favorite quotes of the week. Oh, that's true. I so I actually have two, uh, with the justification that one is from a Fred's uh, story and one is from the historical notes. So I'm allowed. All right. Um, yeah. Totally. <laughs> okay. So the actress who plays Moaning Myrtle was 40 years old when she was Moaning Myrtle. Seriously. 40 years old. She looked like a wow. kid. Wow. Pretty impressive. What? What multivitamin is she yeah. taking? Because wow. <laughs> I mean, what does she use for her face cream? Well, but to be to be fair, one, she was a ghost, and two, she is supposed to be portraying a teenager, but like not an attractive or like like put together. Teenager. The glasses hide her age. 
I guess, That's yeah. True. So yeah, and the okay. pigtails, the pigtails do the do a lot. So if they could make Morning Myrtle be forty years old, um, they should. I don't know. You mean a forty year old forty be Morning Myrtle? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah sure, whatever. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, okay. So anyway, uh, my first favorite is a Fred's line. Um, it's when she, it's like at the very beginning of this section, um, she says, I'm sorry there's so much pain in this story. I'm sorry it's in fragments like a body caught in crossfire or pulled apart by force, but there is nothing I can do to change it. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. And that's just, I mean, it, it perfectly sums up, uh, her situation. And then my other favorite is from the historical notes. Yeah. So it's Professor, Professor Piek. Piexoto, and he says, As I have said elsewhere, there was little that was truly original with or indigenous to Gilead. Its genius was synthesis. And he's talking about, um, like, the uh, origins of the rituals, such as persecution and salvaging and all that. This is... It's not anything new. It's something that we've mentioned time and time again reading the book, that there are certainly elements um, that are, like just twisted ever so slightly of real th- events that have happened um, that make up the Republic of Gilead. And that's, uh, it's, it's, it's intentional. You know, it's Margaret Atwood scaring us with um, how, how, I mean, how unreal the Republic of Gilead seems at times, but also how close it absolutely seems. Yeah. Too. All right, Katie, I'm going to take a, a, page out of your book and do um two quotes one for the actual meat of the book and one for the historical notes so one of my favorite quote for this section is after they've the the women who have been salvaged are hung uh, they say, where, where she says, Beneath the hems of the dresses, the feet dangle, two pairs of red shoes, one pair of blue. If it weren't for the ropes and the sacks, it could be a kind of dance, a ballet caught by flash camera, midair. They look arranged. They look like showbiz. It must have been Aunt Lydia who put the blue one in the middle. That's my favorite quote for this week. Man, Aunt Lydia. Yeah. And the fact that she sees, like theater in this that that of fred is able to see the kind of performance of in in something like an execution is just makes her it it raises my esteem for her so much that she's able to have this kind of perspective even while she's experiencing this trauma on a related note (laughs) in the historical notes when the professor is talking about that they don't know much about a fred he says, she appears to have been an educated woman insofar as a graduate of any North American college of the time may be said to have been educated. Laughter, some groans. And uh, I, <laughs> I wondered what you guys made of this. If, is this Margaret Atwood trying to j- take a, a, you know, a jibe at, at North American education? Is this trying to say something about academics and how they're never satisfied with the general population like what is she trying to say here i i i felt like well first of all uh i'm about to throat punch a professor yes um (laughs) and and second of all that uh so i mean obviously this is post republic of gilead and um post reforming of some semblance of normalcy at least Mm -hmm. i mean 
uh, this like newly reformed society. But uh, I think Sky, you said earlier, and I agree. You know, patriarchy is still alive and well, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, there 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 are hints of it that are going to remain. And for me, that I think that's what that indicated. Yeah, this this like, um, you know, I I have a master's degree in in art history and archaeology, so I attended lots and lots and lots of conferences and talks like this um, a few years ago. And for the most part, like, Margaret would really get this spot on. But (laughs) this particular passage really stuck out to me because that's generally not how historians talk about people from the historical times that they study. They're just, like, you know... Historians are generally very aware of like what relative education levels were like, and, and they're charitable and to people. Gen- and, yeah. Generally, don't judge people for the like lack of educational opportunities of and like quality of education available in their historical times. However, this book was not written four years ago when I was in grad school. This book was written like thirty years ago. I think like maybe at that time maybe there were still these holdovers from an earlier time in history like and by history i mean the study of history in which someone might have said something like this i think that would have been very out of place at the talks that i went to um Mm -hmm. recently but maybe that was not maybe in 1985 that would have made yeah yeah. it would have made more sense in 1985 for someone to have said that maybe not i don't know i I don't really know what's going on here but that that definitely isn't the kind of thing that would have been said at the like you know the history talks that that i attended I also think we have to remember that in this section, Margaret Atwood is poking fun at uh, at academia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think um, I mean because especially like these people in the future in the historical notes clearly view the Republic of Gilead as a kind of like dark age for or like a you know a, a step back in, in and a severely damaged history, civilization. Yeah. So if you look at um, other periods of history that are like that or, or have that narrative, right? One of them is like the Dark Ages, um, which is to say the like, you know, early medieval period, which is the period that I actually studied when I was in grad school. And at this time in the 80s, when The Handmaid's Tale was written, you might have still heard professors, although they were increasingly becoming extinct, uh, voice this idea of the Dark Ages as a dark age, an age of uh, regression, an age of oppression, um, and that was the narrative was that, you know, uh, the, the great light of antiquity had been extinguished and it wouldn't be revised into the Renaissance. And that's just not how historians think about this period of time anymore. Um, but in the 80s, but it still has there a may... big cultural presence. Right. I, the, the uh, you know, the general population still may feel that way, but historians really don't view that period like that anymore. Now, at the same time, some of that may cover up. There's this great passage about cultural relativism in this uh, historical notes section that I think we should talk about. Oh, um, I. Mm, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That that really bothered me. It's cultural relativism at the expense of like acknowledging the trauma and horror that this woman went through, or that women in general went through. Right for uh, for the historian, uh, Fred is not a person but a historical document and a source and you know that is how historians talk about like you know uh historical documents all the time but it you know having just sort of read of fred's narrative it really like 
It seems cruel. If I may be permitted an editorial aside, allow me to say that in my opinion we must be cautious about passing moral judgment upon the Gileadians. Surely we have learned by now that such judgments are of necessity culture-specific. Also, Gileadian society was under a good deal of pressure, dem demographic and otherwise, and was subject to factors from which we ourselves are happily more free. Our job is not to censure, but to understand. Applause. This yeah. is, I mean, this is, like, Lauren, I know that, like, this pissed you off. Like, I think this is meant to piss you off. I think you, the reader, is supposed to be like, no, fuck you. That's not the lesson that we should be learning from this. It is, and it is an absolute misuse of cultural relativity. Absolutely. Right, like, cultural relativity is a, like, it is a tool that you can use to understand other cultures and uh, peoples, but also, like, not it should not, abuse. exactly, it is not... Does it is not supposed to be used to excuse uh, violence and and barbarism and oppression, um, which is in fact the case here. But it's you know the Handmaid's Tale is a cautionary tale about how we look at the past, how we look at the Soviet Union, how and we the look at the lessons that we learn from Germany. the past. Yeah, exactly. Because they're able to, they're able to distance themselves from this and say, "Oh, we don't have to worry about this because we're free of these social pressures. This could never happen to us here," which is what people have said for a long time about every other historical atrocity. And look at where we are now. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, right. It's it's easy for us to say like, "Oh, in the Middle Ages, they had all these problems like the plague and stuff, and that's why they made all these poor decisions." And luckily, um, we we you know. Happy folks are 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 free from the, that burden. Yeah. Um. Bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, all in all, I I honestly think that the book has kind of a positive ending. Like it's kind of it's not as much of a bummer ending as I thought it was going to be. Um, what about your favorite quotes? You didn't say any, say any. I guess we could count that one. Yeah, sure. We'll go with that one. That was my favorite <laughs> quote. Uh, that was not my favorite quote, um, but it was a quote that I read. So we're going to count that one. Um, you guys hit the best ones, I think. Um, but, but yeah, I guess so... I don't know. I, I, I still count this as... I mean, it's am, the, the story itself is an ambiguous ending. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not really so sure if I can say that, that this book is optimistic or pes yeah. or pessimistic at the end of it. I think that it is cautionary. Um, oh yeah. I don't, I don't mean to say that I think the book is optimistic at the end. I mean, I was not a, like quivering wreck in the fetal position, like oh, crying yeah. at, at the end of this book. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I remember the first time I read this book, I was, while you're a little bit relieved for uh, of Fred as an individual, the fact that this is the early period of Galadian society and you realize that this goes on for decades and decades and that well wait no it's never made clear like this whole period could have been 20 years and the early period could have been the first five years you know mm. what I mean? 
know. It's Katie, not made clear how long the uh, the Galadian period exists for. But it but it goes on for long enough for what she's going through to be called the early period, and that she doesn't have to. You know, like there's no end in sight for for someone who is on who right is, for any of the other characters right, in the novel. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know, and I don't. I don't really know how to interpret how how long this period lasts. Um, the realist in me thinks that it goes on for at 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 least fifty years. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. But really, I don't know. because yeah. the early it's it, so basically the historian indicates that like shortly after the events of the narrative narrative, um, the commander. Uh, would have been like you know like killed in one of these early purges right and they go and down to the middle pur- period that's even more strict right 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 but the, those purges would have sort of heralded the beginning of the middle period so the middle period starts sort of right after the events of this uh and so if that's how if the early period is that short it seems to me that it could be as short as 15 years or i mean or longer like i'm just saying like i'm not convinced that this has to go on for a very very long time for instance like the like historians of the french revolution like mm-hmm. break it up into like all of these different phases and things like that but the entire french revolutionary period from like the pre-revolutionary beginnings to like napoleon it's about 20 25 exactly years. which mm-hmm. is which is yeah. and it's an important and incredibly like it's a period of great upheaval lots of people die like the social order is turned on its head again and again and again but like let's be real it's like 20 25 years it's not forever. Mm, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to find. I'm like shuffling through this historical epilogue, trying to find something. But I mean, you're right. A, it doesn't say you know yeah. about a specific time period. In my mind, I just I imagined it to be a century long. You but know? that's because we want we want the like 1984 interpretation of this, <laughs> which is like you know uh, imagine a boot stepping on a human face forever. But mm-hmm. in reality, like. You know, even if we think about the Soviet Union as this, um, you know, that lasts for, uh, you know, less than a century, but a long, long time. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's the Handmaid's Tale. That's, do, that's the Handmaid's Tale. Do we have Tale. anything else to go over, or are we on to the next thing? We've covered everything that I have thought of. Uh, so, listeners, if you if if we missed anything, be sure to add us. Yeah, talk to us on Twitter at ILL Bookcast. We can keep this conversation going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I um, think that The Handmaid's Tale is a book that will always have relevance. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, even when you're not living in like some scary, crazy political dystopia, you know, <laughs> like we are right now, pre-Gileadian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Yep. All right. So onward and yeah, out. yeah. Uh, next week we'll be reading um, Voltaire's Candide. Uh, we're reading the translation by Theo Cuff. Um, mm-hmm. This is the Penguin paperback edition. Um, Get the deluxe one. It's pretty. Yeah, the deluxe one's really pretty. It's got uh, uh, cartoon illustrations on the uh, cover by Chris Ware. It's very nice. Uh, yeah. So next week, we'll be reading Candide uh, chapters 1 through 10 and uh, and also the introduction 
Um, uh, Michael Wood, I believe, yes. wrote the introduction, mm-hmm. and um, it's pretty great. Um, there's also uh, Voltaire's essay on the earthquake. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it, this is post uh, Candide proper, uh, post the story. So um, I would certainly recommend reading that. Oh, you, you mean that it's at the end of the book? Uh, it yeah, is, it's at the end it of the is book. in this yeah. book, but after the text of Candide. Do we want to wait until after on the second section to do it, or do you want to do it in the first one? Uh, Katie, I think, wanted to read it first. Right? Oh, okay, cool. I th- well, I, I think, yeah. So I, I would suggest reading the introduction and at least that um, bit on, on the earthquake. Uh, before we read the the actual story, and then we can use uh, that to to refer back to as we as we read the story. So we're gonna do three episodes on it: chapters one through ten, chapters eleven through twenty, and chapters twenty one through thirty. That is it on the Handmaid's Tale for now. As we said, we will be revisiting the story uh, when we view the first three episodes of the Hulu miniseries. Uh, So be on the lookout for that. Uh, But next week, we will begin with Candide. And as always, I am Katie. I'm Skye. And I'm Lauren. Thanks for listening. Enter, 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 library loan. Please rate us high, high, high on iTunes. Find us online at illbook.club. On Twitter we are at illbookcast. Thank you to our generous, smart, beautiful, awesome Patreon donors. We couldn't do it without you. Okay okay okay, back to robot sleep until next week.